out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of an actor. It is Candy Clark, who appeared in the 1973 classic American Graffiti and then went on to, um, well, star in lots of films. But it was her 1976 film when she plays the character Mary Lou in The Man Who Fell to Earth, directed by Nicolas Cage and starring David Bowie. Yes, David Bowie. So um, I was particularly excited to um, get an interview with her. As you do. So uh, this is it. Um, Yes, there's not much else to say really. Um, Apart from a little bit about the issues we had, nothing drastic, but there was a connection to do with um, our landline or Zoom, which didn't work very well at the beginning. And then I think the mobile phone didn't work. But we got there in the end. I know, exciting background. Uh, Information which you don't probably need to know, but um, I thought I'd give it to you anyway, because there was a certain, I don't know, panic in my voice I think um, but anyway look she's from uh, where was she from yes Fort Worth Texas which is slightly important to this because we t- um, start talking about the early formative years Handy Clark it's over to you tell us more and by the way there's a fantastic little bit at the end um, when she talks about David Bowie well um, I think I left Fort Worth and 1968, and before that, I was graduated high school in 65, didn't go to college. I was the oldest of five children, and, um, you know, we were kept abreast of, you know, what was going on through magazines like Life Magazine and Look Magazine, and, um, but Fort Worth is kind of very conservative, <laughs> back then, and, um, you know, not many people were doing the long hair thing. Mostly it was, or, you know, the twiggy makeup or the sassoon haircut or any of that. It was, you know, people were pretty square back then in Fort Worth. Yes. Right now, because of the Internet, everyone's able to keep up with what's going on in styles and fashion, you know, if they so choose. But back then, you had to kind of rely on uh, magazines and a little bit of television. Back then, television, you know, the lo- the news was basically, you know, local news or there was some national news. But, um, you know, it looked really interesting, the hippies in San Francisco and, uh, you know, Haight-Ashbury and all of that, but it was really so far out of my realm um, that, uh, you know, I did get a Sassoon haircut, a Fort Worth, Fort Worth Sassoon haircut, and it came out so bad because I went to a little local beauty shop and I was crying because it was like nothing like the Sassoon that you saw in the magazine. And the lady said, oh, yeah, I can do this, and it was so horrible. And uh, I think a a friend of mine picked me up on his little motorcycle and I cried the whole way home, hanging on to, you know, I was sitting on the back. But, you know, Fort Worth was, you know, it was known as Cowtown (laughs) or Where the West Began. That was the logo on the newspaper. They had two newspapers, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and uh, I forget what the other one was. And we subscribed, but... It was basically local news, so you didn't get to uh, experience what was really going on in, you know, in San Francisco and Los Angeles and all of that. Yes. By looking at magazines, you tried your best, but you know, it wasn't the same. Yeah, and did you? I mean, did bands and and sort of films start to sort of sort of pen a sort of filter in through through to sort of various channels i just wondered if the first time you bought a single or the first time you bought an album or went to see a band during that period well we were really really poor and uh so we weren't buying too many i don't even think we had a record player so we certainly weren't buying uh records back then um but i did uh go to a few concerts mostly there were uh, like James Brown concerts or Chuck Berry, 
and um, it was very rare that went to concerts, but uh, the ones I went to, I enjoyed. The, I went to a James Brown concert, and at the end, me and my friend, we had had a great time, and we were getting in our car to uh, leave, and uh, a man, uh, another older teenager came over and uh, hit my friend in the eye, punched him in the eye, and then he was knocked out, and that's how kind of the whole evening ended of him, you know, with a bloody face. And, it, yeah, so, you know, that's Texas for you. <laughs> you get punched for no reason. Yes. But, um, you know, the back then, uh, Texas was uh, liquor by, no, it was uh, bring your own bottle. So a lot of people would very much overdrink. And the bars just sold setups, which were just a Coca-Cola. And that was what a bar sold was a Coca-Cola, a mixer. And so as a result, people would very much overdrink because they're pouring their own drinks out of the bottle. And uh, that finally, Texas wised up that they were losing a lot of money by selling, you know, only Cokes and setups and ginger ale. And, uh, you know, they, the law changed and now... Like everywhere else, they sell it by by the you know the mixed drink. But back then, there was a lot of heavy drinking in Texas. That was before seatbelts and you know car crashes would happen, and you know there was a lot of negativity going on yes. in that department. Uh, when I was in high school, Kennedy got shot and killed, and that was a really, really, really horrible day and you know, the funeral and all of that, that really was devastating. Um, you know, that really changed America in a big way. Yes. And did it feel a very big divide where you were between, you know, the sort of so-called right and left? Did it, did it or the conservative? And no, left? that it was very conservative, so it must have been pretty much right. <laughs> you know, right wing or or Republican or conservative. I I don't know. I wasn't involved in any politics yes. back then. Didn't care. I didn't notice. But I did like President Kennedy, and I think the whole U.S. loved him, and it just uh, really smashed us. You know, and you know, it hasn't really recovered. I don't think. Yes. From that incident. And when people like Marilyn Monroe died, did that ever sort of have any effect on you? I mean, when, you know, because they're such iconic. Well, I read about it, but it was, you know, far away. It was in California. And, you know, I did follow her career a bit. But, you know, we didn't have any money to go to actual movies. Mostly just went to the drive-ins. And by then, the movies, you know, had been out for a while. And so, and then they'd wind up at the drive-in. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, went to a few kitty matinees when we were kids, you know, where they'd have a double feature and get in on a Saturday for a dime or whatever. But uh, yes, and did you, know, you did you see did mainly watch television? And I was going to say, did did films like um, Easy Rider sort of appear in your life at all? Well, that happened way back in the. 70s. So I was already here in in uh, Los Angeles, and I watched that. What what year do you think it came out? Good question. Um, I'd say 19. God, you put me on the spot there. 74, 75, 73, somewhere in there. Yeah, I was already here. I got to Los Angeles in 1971. Yes. And, uh, but before that, how did you manage to? Um, not escape, but how, how did you sort of make your move to, to leave your, you know, the hometown and find a different world? Well, I was, uh, my friend of mine and I, we were, you know, I graduated high school and my friend Judy and I were um, looking for work. We got hired as floor models for a manufacturer's uh, clothing lines at the Dallas Apparel Mart market and um there was a man that we were working for 
And what what that job entailed was going behind a curtain, changing clothes, and coming out and showing the buyers, you know, the outfits, and then going back behind the curtain. And, you know, that was the job of showing off someone's clothing line, you know, a manufacturer. And the man that we were working for, he <laughs> we were teenagers, and he gave me the card and said, hey, if you're ever in New York, look me up. Well, that was the uh, last thing you needed to say to two poor girls from uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Of course, my friend and I, Judy, we started plotting our trip. How are we going to get to New York, you know? And um, at that time, uh, TWA was offering youth fair tickets in the summer, and uh, I saved up enough money to buy a ticket, and so did Judy, but... um, The day we were leaving, she just totally disappeared, and it turned out she had been arrested for shoplifting. (laughs) And uh, I went to tech, uh, I got on a midnight flight, and I flew to New York City by myself, and I was going to stay for a a week, you know, and see the place. And um, I. As we were coming in for a landing, it was dawn. The sun was coming up in New York City, and I was seeing it from the air because I was sitting at the window uh, of the airplane, and it was all like this beautiful pink and gold city. It was, you know, with that dawn light on it. It was yes. just gorgeous. I thought, you know what? I'm never going back to Fort Worth. <laughs> I decided from the air that I was moving to New York City. And I I decided I was never going back to Fort Worth, and I didn't. I wound up staying there for four years. Blimey. And that was quite an interesting time, wasn't it? Because there was so much art and culture and change, and you must have, you know, that... Oh, all all the designers like Betsy Johnson and Paraphernalia and all these great uh, young designers, Mary Quant, and they were just all blooming in New York City, and it was a great time for fashion and for discotheques and just meeting people and couch surfing. And, you know, back then, you didn't have to worry that someone was going to be a serial killer or, you know, you didn't think anything of that. You just, you know... Moved in with people, moved out, moved on. You know, it was a great time, very easygoing. Yes. People were hitchhiking, and there was just no fear amongst, uh, you know, that all changed with, uh, you know, I guess Richard Speck, who was a serial killer, and also uh, Charles Manson. Yeah. So, you, know, you must have been... quit hitchhiking thing. Yeah. That would have knocked that on the head. But during that period, there would have been a lot of, you know, concerts and festivals and happenings. And also Woodstock appeared in that sort of period right. as well. So you must have... I wasn't e- ever a big concert person. Never. You know, it, a lot of times concerts are way too loud for my ears and kind of hurt me more than they're pleasurable. Yes. And, um, so yes. I've... When I do a concert or a small club, I have to stuff all kinds of paper in my ears. And that's, you know, I mean, it's nice, but it's not, my ears are way too sensitive for that. And it's especially the high notes, the treble sounds are really, the bass doesn't bother me. It's the high guitar sounds and and it always has. Yes, absolutely. And then... As as with every good story, you get a massive break, don't you, with John Houston in the film Fat City from 1972. Oh, yeah. So John Houston, I mean, he's, his kind of CV is kind of quite amazing in so many ways. But he'd also sort of worked with people like the, was it late, early early 60s? He'd worked with um, people like Marilyn Monroe and uh, Clark Gable and um, oh, Montgomery 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 Cliff. God, I wish I could say that properly. Um, so he he's got an amazing CV. So how did you manage to sort of land that little number? Oh, I tried out for the role. <laughs> and I was living at that point, um, I had met a casting director in New York City, and um, 
I had wanted to be an extra. I wanted. I was modeling, and I was becoming quite successful. But I wanted to earn some extra money, so I went to this casting office, and he got me a little gig being an extra on a a movie with Dustin Hoffman called called Who Is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Things About Me? And that was the title of it. Very long title, but I really liked being an extra. You know, I liked watching the uh, Dustin Hoffman and, you know, I and I like talking to the other extras and, you know, it was really fun. So I wanted to go back. I went back to the same casting office and said, yeah, I would really like to do more of this. And while I was there, there was another Los Angeles casting director called Fred Ruth and Lynn Stallmaster, who was the person I initially went to see, said to Fred, hey, this is Candy Clark, you know, it's just an introduction. And it was that time where you would just go, and Fred Roos said, hey, would you like to go with me to watch um, them shoot the screen test for The Godfather? But like I said, you didn't think anything up. You know, it was a time when people were not, scary or creepy it just seemed normal to walk off or hitchhike or do any of that stuff you know and so I said yeah I'd love to go and so we got in a cab together and went out to um, Queens I think it was and watched Francis Coppola um, doing screen tests for The Godfather and I watched Jimmy Kahn and all kinds of male actors trying out for different parts in the movie and hung out with Francis Coppola. Uh, that's just the way it was. You know, it was real easy going. Yes, I know. You, you, it all sounds, it sounds so casual in a, in a kind of groovy sort of way. Because um, yeah, was, I was going to say, I mean, you'd work with, you know, obviously John Houston in that, that particular film. And did that, was that quite a life-changing experience? Was that something that... Fat yes, City trying out for that and um, did a screen test. And the next thing I knew, I was up in Stockton, California, and I had met Jeff Bridges on the screen test. And then we we had, it was love at first sight. We just, boom, you know. And we were together for three or four years and um, from that movie. So, yeah, it was life-changing. And I decided I was moving to Los Angeles, you know, I was living in New York and making headway on my modeling career. And I just up and moved to Los Angeles. And Jeff and I moved in together. And, you know, that's how I got to L.A. Yes. Well, it's quite a nice way to get to L.A., isn't it? Really? Let's face it. Oh, yeah. Boyfriend. Because <laughs> I had no boyfriend in really in New York City. Yes. I know. But I had then... a lot of friends. No, no romance. Well, it's quite interesting because I suppose, I suppose they're more the mid sixties. But there had been films like A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which was probably the late fifties. But then you also had On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. So a lot of those kind of massive films, and then the Godfather films appeared, which were quite huge. Mm. And you'd work yeah. with obviously um, John John Huston in Fat City, then George Lucas, American Graffiti, and then Nicholas Rogue in in The Man Who Fell to Earth. So. Um, you were on quite a role in the early seventies, weren't you? Let's face it. Yeah, very much. So on on the on the latter part, you know the 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 um, the man who fell to earth, which was quite um, it became it's become one of those kind of films, hasn't it? Which everyone just a cult classic. What was that like for you? And how how did you sort of manage to get the the part for that? Well, um, I was introduced to Nick Rogue through Cy Litvinoff, who became the producer of The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I think Nick and I were having lunch, you know, we were having lunch. And, but he had a meeting at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and then we were going to go have lunch. And um, so he had like a two-hour meeting. And so I just sat in the lobby, and he said, while you're waiting, just read this script. Tell me what you think. And so I'm reading The Man Who Fell to Earth, and I'm like, 
he comes out and I, he said, what did you think? And I said, fantastic. He said, do you want the part? It was that easy. It was like, wow, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then it was like six months, you know, for them to get the money together and, you know, start hiring people. And David got on board and Buck Henry and Rip Torn. And, the, you know, it took six or seven months. So at that point, I had read the script since I knew I had the part uh, so many times. And I kind of figured out how I wanted to do this because in the story, a lot of time is passing. So you have to convey to the audience that, you know, you're getting older, your styles are changing. You know, the only character that didn't age was the man who fell to earth, the David Bowie character. And the rest of us got older and older. So there was a lot to figure out, you know, yes. uh, to convey time passing. And, you know, so it and was... The, um, and I was going to just say, I mean, had you... Because um, it's kind of an interesting story, because obviously it's, you know, David Bowie who is David Bowie. I mean, did you know much of his work before you met him? What is really funny, I had seen the movie, uh, I think it was called Ziggy Stardust, where he had that one-legged knitted outfit on. Oh, yes, classic. And, uh, was that Ziggy Stardust? Yeah, that was the Ziggy Stardust and possibly Aladdin scene. I had seen that at the theater in New York City. I think I went by myself, you know. And watch this movie, but that was years prior to this getting cast in uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. But you know, I thought it was kind of, eh, you know, strange. I didn't follow his career, and so um, when he got cast, Nick Rogue and I, because I had such a big, big uh, part in the movie, we went to see David Bowie and uh, talked to him, and, you know, he was just, to me, since I'd never seen him live in concert, he was just the actor that I was going to be opposite of, and so I wasn't overly impressed or underly impressed, you know, it was just like meeting another actor, and um, it was only after we finished the movie, uh, got invited to see him as the thin white duke. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my God. And it was a good thing that I hadn't seen him in concert because I would have been like a, you know, a fan instead of, you know, working with, you know, I would have had a whole other outlook yes. to David Bowie. And he was so good on stage. And, uh, you know, but when we worked together one-on-one, -on -one, you know, in a scene, he was just really, really good. It was really sweet, and he liked to run the dialogue because that's really important to me, to learn it backwards and forwards. And it was so well written that, um, you know, it was important to learn it. So he, so we would be very natural, at naturalistic, in our parts. So it was like us talking instead of, you know, reciting lines. So. He liked to we could we could run it a hundred times and he never got tired or bored. So I attribute that to him being on stage and you know rehearsing a lot with the bands. Every time they change you know a location or a venue, they have to go in you know play their songs and make sure it. So he was very used to uh, run you know rehearsing. So it didn't bother him at all. A lot of actors think they get stale with running the lines but it it only helps me yes absolutely um, and because I'm struggling it, like what's the next thing I'm supposed to say oh no oh no you know I'm thinking of that when I have it memorized I'm just looking at the other actor and we're you know doing our thing yes and the scenes in that film because most of it it's it sort of filmed sort of I think towards the middle of 75 and it's in places like New Mexico and Albuquerque and White Sands which is a beautiful national park um, so it was quite a, it was a relatively it must have been a very intense kind of film for the crew and also the cast because it wasn't a huge cast so what's it like to I don't think it was intense because Nick Rogue had his British crew 
people he knew were the the crew, the yes. cinematographer. All these were the a full British crew came to New Mexico, which was very unusual. But they all knew each other, so they were all pals. And you know, about four o'clock, the they had a bar, you know, in one of the tra- uh, the trucks, and they would crack it open and. You know, it was um, a very upbeat, happy crew. Yes, absolutely. I... There was no squabbling or anything. So they all knew each other. Yeah. And did it, I mean, uh, with your experience of being in quite a lot of films, do they all change? You know, is it all very different from one film to another when you have to get into that part? And I just wondered how that affects you kind of emotionally and on quite a psychic, um, you know, it's just always weird to walk on the first few days of a set because, you know, it's all a bunch of strangers and kind of jittery because, you know, it, it, you know, yeah, am I going to be able to do this part? You know, you don't know until you actually start doing it. And then everybody relaxes. Everybody's suffering from the same, I guess, agitation of new location, new people, you know, the beginning of a film, how's it going to go? And then everything settles in and everybody's, you know, relaxed with each other, but it takes a day or two. But the whole trick about being on a movie, it's you really kind of have to jump in and become friends with a whole bunch of strangers like really quickly because time is short. You only have a certain amount of time to get this work done. So, you know, yeah, everybody just has to get along yes. as best as possible really quickly. It's like being with the circus, you know. There's the wires, there's the lights, there's, you know, the actors, there's the uh, makeup, there's wardrobe. There, everybody has to play their part, and, you know, it's it just keeps unfolding. And then when it's over with, it's really sad because it's been a real tight, you know, uh, experience. And by then, everybody's attached to each other. And, you know, it's it's wonderful. I really love it. Yes, I will. Well, I can imagine. And also, I mean, I know I've heard sort of David Bowie talk about that character that he plays and how he gets quite consumed by it. So it took... A lot out of him because it, he didn't just kind of you know finish filming and that was it. it it sort of stayed with him and also he had at that point um quite a drug issue going on so there was but that you know what he had promised and if he was on drugs he can really hide it well he seemed very relaxed and very much like the what he was photographed he never seemed like you know he was agitated by drugs or dried out or you know, blowing his nose or anything. And I don't, you know, he had promised Nick Rogue that he was not going to do drugs while we shot this film. And if he was, he certainly, it didn't, it didn't change his behavior or his persona at all. No. And if he was, there was never anything on his face. He was never disappearing. You know, he kept it together. He might have just said that as his, because he liked to create mystique about himself. Yes. Well, I think Nick Road, Road said um, had seen that film, hadn't he, which was made where he was driving through California or the West Coast, and he was talking about the milk and the fly in the milk, and he was a bit like that. And I think at that stage, he 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 had a little bit of an issue with cocaine, but but you know, but I did read that he'd also promised. If he- was, which I really doubt. If he was, he was so discreet that you would never even think of it. You would never suspect. Yes. Well, because I'll... usually people with cocaine or have the sniffles, um, they disappear, they want to go to the bathroom a lot. You know, there's just a whole behavior that wasn't going on when we did the film. Yeah. And does it, on your, and for you, did it 
when it finishes, you you know, probably on one level, it might feel like, oh, that's a good bit of work. But then when you sort of get back to your apartment and it's kind of finished and over and then you're sort of waiting for it to be edited and then eventually screened, does how do you cope with that emotional moment of being in such a sort of a group of people and a family almost to kind of being back at home? It, it didn't ever... You know, I didn't look back with, like, oh, I'm so sad. But what I would do is look forward to the Cats and Coos screening, uh, you know, thinking that it was going to be great and excited about going forward. I was never regretful about leaving all those people. No. You know, like, oh, it's so sad that it's over with. No, it was great while it was going on. We always knew it was going to be over with. And, um, you know, you just wait for the next thing, which is, you know, the opening, the red carpet, whatever. Yes. Meanwhile, you're doing, living your life, you're doing other things. But. And with that period between finishing the filming and then the red carpet, is it nice to sort of have a sort of almost a reunion again to, um, to catch up oh, with a yeah, few people? Definitely. For sure. Yes, I can imagine it would be fantastic. But then, yes, absolutely. And you must feel chuffed because, you know, those films have now gone down in sort of film history, haven't they? And they're sort of studied it. They sure have. And um, that must feel one of those great moments because I know with, uh, you know, with sort of sticking on the same film, but then decades later, there's this kind of play, isn't there, Lazarus, which is kind of almost taking, you know, The Man Who Fell to Earth and then sort of bringing it up to date. Did well, you... you know, I knew that, you know, David and I didn't stay in contact, no. But I knew that he was doing that play because it has written up in the, you know, on the Internet. And I kept thinking, i got to book a ticket and i got to go to New York and I go to opening night and and surprise him, not let him know I was coming or anything, just be in the audience, and then afterwards, uh, you know, walk up to him and see if he even <laughs> remembered me. And um, so I kept putting it off. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then the opening night came, and I was still here in California. And I looked at his pictures because they had some press pictures of him backstage, and I thought, wow, he looks strange. He looks I don't know. It doesn't look like him. He looked kind of stressed. And it later turned out that he was suffering from some sort of cancer. I don't even know what it was. And um, But I, you know, I really regret not going, you know, flying in and surprising him because that was basically, you know, the last time he would be seen, basically, yes. except on his, you know, his uh, video that he did of his music, where he had that wraparound and the button eyes and all of that. That's right, yes, Lazarus. Did, um, yes. That was basically the last time he was seen in person. I know, I know. So, Mr., you know, so a... I regret that, that's for sure. yeah. And then as the decade progressed, your next film was um, was The Big Sleep. So obviously, you know, think the 70s was had been really quite an extraordinary decade. And were you still managing to sort of keep it together as well? What do you mean, keep it together? Well, with a lot of people in the world of the arts, you know, they, there's normally a good sort of five years where things are sort of like, can, you know, if it does happen, it, it goes often really quite smoothly and then there's often moments where just keeping everything you know all the plates spinning and keeping one's kind of I suppose because it's kind of quite an unusual life you know just keeping one's sanity really I just wondered how that was feeling oh no I never had a problem with my sanity no or depression or any of that that's not the kind of person I am yeah I, I don't you know I don't, uh, you know, I've done probably 80 different projects, maybe more. And, you know, there's always something else around the corner. 
Um, but no, I never had problems with drugs or heavy alcoholism or depression or any of that. Just never did. Which is amazing. Well, which is amazing and good as well, obviously. Because, um, <laughs> well, most people, there's a, there's a moment where there, there's a bit of a, a little, like a bit of a in, bad internet connection, isn't it? It just gets a bit sort of fuzzy and then you think, oh dear, that, that wasn't such a great period. Because obviously, you know, it's it's quite an interesting career that you've you've chosen. So I just wondered how one keeps the sort of enthusiasm going. Did it, has it always been quite a uh, sort of have you always managed to keep it on a sort of an equal on an even keel so to speak have i been able to keep on an even keel yes yes yeah yeah i'm not prone to depression i'm not prone to regret uh, you know looking back with a lot of regret you know there's a few moments like not go- showing up at, at his at david bowie's um play you know but i don't keep going over and over and over my regrets you know i have them and then you know it just so happened that that's what happened and we go forward yes and obviously going quite a bit of a jump here you did you ended up working in berlin didn't you to um yeah with a in a play <laughs> this guy this uh man wrote this well his thing was he would interview you and record everything you said, and then that would become the play. And you can't imagine how hard it is to memorize your life in a certain order with certain things that you said when he interviewed you. It's like you and me, you and I are doing this interview, but then you type it up, and then I have to memorize it. That is tricky. So, it is tricky. You're, you would think, oh, that's easy. You're just, you know, saying your own life. But, you know, it becomes very difficult to memorize, you know. Even that was tar- hard. But it was a three-woman play, and it was all kind of based on each person you know, told their story, and then they had to memorize it, and then they had to, you know, say it on stage. The thing is, the guy that wrote it was a great idea, and it was kind of based on, I guess he really loved Louise Brooks and her independence and all of that, and how she, you know, survived Hollywood. And, and uh, But the thing is, he had... <clears throat> He was really a, a post, he worked at a postal office or something, and he had no idea how to advertise what he had done. As a result, nobody ever came to the play. <laughs> so we wound up just kind of doing it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for a very small, small audiences. But it was still two weeks in Berlin. Two weeks prior, recording your story, and then he typed it up, and then go fly back and do two weeks of the the theatrical run with no audience. But it was I love Berlin. That was a, a real plus, you know. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that must have been one of them. Yeah. Well, it's, good. it's always good to test yourself in these things, isn't it? Really, with a bit of avant-garde. Yeah, it was really great and Berlin's a very very interesting uh, city a lot of wonderful I ate so much Wiener Schnitzel I <laughs> loved it <laughs> yeah every restaurant I'll have Wiener Schnitzel <laughs> and a beer but um, it was just wonderful they had you know farmers markets and it was just a real walkable town especially the sec- section I was in but yeah yeah. Great experience, even though nobody came to see us. It was still fun. <laughs> well, it's got to be done. Do you, I mean, if you could have said something to a, like a, a 16 or 18-year-old self, you know, starting out, you know, what advice or kind of wisdom from all the decades that you've had, 
you know, would you sort of whisper in their ear? I just wondered if there was anything that you thought this would be a really good thing to, you know, just to sort of focus on or just keep an eye on. I would have... um... I always had a fear of auditioning and trying out for parts. So I would have talked to myself how to conquer that fear. Because that, I've lost so many opportunities in many different uh, projects and film because I do, uh, I get too nervous on an audition because I really want the part. And so, you know, I choke at the bat, as they say. And... Um, you know, so that would be basically somehow get over that section. Yes. But as it was, even though I had the great fear of trying out for parts in people's offices, I still managed to snag a few <laughs> opportunities, you know. Yes. And did you, I mean, because, because I suppose, as you can tell, I was obsessed with, you know, David Bowie and the man who fell to earth. But but American Graffiti has obviously sort of put a huge chapter in your life. I mean, with that particular film, when you were making it, did you have any idea of the kind of the importance and the the kind of impact that that was going to have? Or did you did it just feel like, well, this is I exciting. I always thought it was going to be a smash. <laughs> it was exactly what we did in Texas. The script was great. The characters were great. Uh, what you didn't realize when we were shooting it, and I really got along with Charlie and, you know, the guy who played Toad, Charles Martin Smith. We really got along great. And all the actors hung out together when we weren't working and had lunch, and it was really tight-knit. And um, I always felt that it was going to be a hit. I always felt that way. And then when we had the the cast and crew screening, I remember it was a packed house, you know, because friends were there and stuff. And I was sitting on the steps, you know, the staircase of the theater, you know how it's raked and you have all those steps. I was sitting, it was packed house. And I remember sitting there and then Rock Around the Clock came on and the first view of Mel's drive-in and that great picture of Mel's and the, and the, actor, you know, the the characters riding in on their cars and mopeds and all of that. And the whole audience stood up and cheered just from that first few images. And I thought, we got a hit. And uh, sure enough, we did. Yes. And it was um, a very low budget film and total cost with music. They got 41 songs for $40,000. Total cost with music was $850,000. Yes, that's amazing. And it made millions. Without American Graffiti, George Lucas wouldn't be the billionaire he is today. Yes, because I remember in Star Wars, one of the cars said, I won't get a fee, I'll just have a percentage. And everyone just said, I'll just have the fee because I don't think this is going to be a great film. Um, I can't remember who that was, actually. But obviously that, that paid his pension off. Did uh, did a, a film like American Graffiti, did that sort of... Has that paid your pension off? Um, after the fact, before it came out, George Lucas split one of his points. And he, you know, he didn't know which way it was going to go. He split one of his points ten ways. So each main actor or, you know, whoever he chose, I don't know who the ten people were. I know some of them, but I don't know all of them. Ten, one-tenth of one percent we got. And every year I get, you know, it's dwindled down, but I think last year I got like $700. And it's like almost 50 years past, you know, since we shot it. So... Yeah, it was a big help. Thank you, George. <laughs> That's yeah, that is quite something, actually, isn't it? Yes, and on 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 that sort of basis, because it's in. I know I keep on about it, but you were born the same year as David Bowie, which I always thought was very cool. Um, what's your? Have you got any projects in the pipeline at the moment, or has it just been a? No, we've gone through a big pandemic. 
and uh, no. Yes. Is it, it open up? I I project that this will be behind us by fall, and all next year will be great. This is true. We are all looking forward. Well, in this country, I've sort of put it down to September when schools and colleges and universities go back. I think... Yeah, by fall, we should be pretty well out of this. Yes, that's cool. With the vaccine. With the vaccine. So you and I are on the same wavelength on our projection. We'll see if we're right, we'll see if we're wrong. But at least we have like a goal. We have. Like a light at the end of our tunnel. It's going to be under control. It will be fine. It's all going to be good, actually. I mean, just on that... So far, you and I made it. We didn't get sick. We didn't, actually. We we, 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 we dodged this thing, and then finally I got both my vaccines, and we dodged for a, a, you know, a year and a couple of months, so... So far, so good. I know. And uh, let's face it, um, since the, I don't know, the Black Death, which was hundreds of years ago, there hasn't been anything like this before. Because my parents, you know, they went through a Second World War and they said, well, we went through that, but we've never been through something like a pandemic. So it's a kind of first. They have. There was a big one uh, on the First World War, uh, the 1918. Yes, the uh, Spanish flu. That's right. Yes, and that killed. That was before science, you know, really knew what, you know, viruses were, you know, the microscope, all of that was, you know, in its early stages, <laughs> no x-rays, you know, Madame Curie was working on it, but it was, you know, and that lasted three years, but they really weren't, like, how is this being spread? You know, so now we know, hey, you know, they were doing, uh, you know, they didn't know about bacteria, you know, when your surgeon would work on you. Did he really wash his hands in between? No, they didn't know. So things lasted longer, but now we know. And, you know, with the computer and all of that, they can make a, a, uh, a vaccine like in a few months when before it would take years, and, you know, they just need the formula. And, you know, we're going to get out of this pretty quick This is true. the vaccine. And that's the only way out. I know. So, we are so relieved. Yeah. This is This is so true, actually. And did your, um, I know I keep saying last word, and how did your, because you said you were one of five and, you know, your parents, did they get to sort of see, you know, sort of I wouldn't say yeah. bathe bathe in your success yeah, but yeah. Did, did they did they feel proud of you when when they saw Oh definitely <laughs> definitely and then my mother started getting some of the benefits of my success cuz I bought her a house you know before I even bought me, myself a house and you know so yeah definitely That's fantastic well look it was a good thing Yes, well, I'm, I'm so pleased. And I have to say, you know, I mean, I did love American graffiti when I was growing up. But then a few years later, it was kind of during the 80s when I saw The Man Who Fell to Earth. And it was always, it always had a big impact. And, um, you know, visually as well. I mean, those images of... Yeah, Tony Richmond. They were just so stunning. And, you know, I've got various books, which, you know, I've sort of gazed at with amazement of, of the cast yeah. and you, you all shooting in sort of, like I said, New Mexico and Albuquerque in the White Sands. So it... Um, the beautiful skies of New Mexico. I know. Do you, um, do you still Some have... shots that are just breathtaking. I mean, they're just so beautiful. And... That's all due to Tony Richmond, who's a master of lighting and making people look fantastic. Yes. And did you, I mean, I know that uh, Jeff, he, uh, David's best friend, was on the on the uh, on the kind of cast, not the cast, but he was in the crew, wasn't he? Jeff McCormack, I think his name was. But um, yes, and if he said he was there, he was there. I mean, there were a lot of people. And my focus was on my work. Yes. Well, anyway, the main characters that were closest to me, like you know Nick Rogue and and my brother Randy worked on the film. I got him a little gig there, and uh, 
you know, if Jeff says he was there, he was there. <laughs> there's <laughs> well, a lot of people that, you know, you get introduced to, but you're so focused on what you're doing that, you know. Sorry, Jeff, I'm sure you had a great time. <laughs> yes, anyway. Well, look, Candy, thank you ever so much for your time, and thank you for sort of sticking I with the... I remember Angela Bowie being there. You do. And some of his, uh, Ava Cherry and some of his... You know, friends like that were there, definitely. Oh, Ava, yes. I came for a while. Nice. Angela came for a while. Ava Cherry, who did his wardrobe, was there. So, yeah, there were a lot of people I do remember. Nice one. Oh, that must have been fantastic, because I know I did an interview with Ava quite recently, and... uh, Yes, um, she was on Young Americans' album, and obviously Angie was his uh, wife. So it must have been, yes, but then, like you said, you were focused on the part, and you, at that stage, David was still just David, not really David, this person who becomes this quite extraordinary character. So you probably just, like you, well, you said earlier, and I hope I'm kind of paraphrasing this, you know, you weren't a huge fan of him at the time, which was quite a relief. It was only when you saw Station... I that I was a not a fan. I became a fan after I saw him live and in concert. But, you know, he was... It wasn't like I was meeting Mick Jagger, someone that I was already knew that I, I liked. It was his... It's probably coming across wrong, <laughs> but, you know, I respected him. But to me... He was not a rock star because if he were, I would be totally in awe and that would be the wrong way to be doing these characters, Mary Lou and and Thomas Jerome Newton. If you're in awe of someone like you're suddenly working with Marlon Brando and you're all gaga, it makes it really hard to work. Yes, well, absolutely. That's not quite. I, am I explaining this correctly? Oh no, you no, you've explained it absolutely fine because you know it's quite, you know, straight down. Yeah, the no line. disrespect to his career in rock, you know, in music. No, no, absolutely no. It was it was, it all makes complete sense. It's good, but look, well, Candy, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this, and the connection's been great. The landline worked well. Forget yeah, Zoom. it did, and you got on the Ethernet instead of that Skypey thing, which wasn't working. No, that definitely didn't work. Well, thank you for being patient, because otherwise I would have freaked out. It would have been too much. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. look, thanks well, a lot. I'm glad we just started over. That was that was the thing to do. It was. Anyway, look, take yeah. care and have a lovely day. And send me, when you get it edited and online, send me a connection. I will. I will. I'll definitely send that over. Okay, take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I like leaving those last bits in because, you know, they keep it real. Anyway, look, a big thank you to Candy Clark for that, uh, giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, If you want to contact me, I know I sound very needy, but all the same, there's no... Harm in that is there. Um, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C eighty six show. Keep it nice and positive. Otherwise, basically, don't bother. Um, and also, I've done lots of interviews, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Um, what else is there? Yes, there's quite a lot on David Bowie. If you want to find out more about Mr. Bowie and stuff like that, and also eighties indie pop. Anyway, I'm going to go. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>